From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, the Lansing community prepares for incoming Afghan refugees. We can probably anticipate a little over a thousand in the state of Michigan um, and maybe up to 300 here in the Lansing area. Then the Michigan GOP ballot proposal that seeks to tighten election laws. Opponents call it voter suppression. In this case, Governor Whitmer has been on record saying she'll veto any legislation that makes it harder to vote. And we mark the 20th anniversary of a seminal Aaliyah album. We'll hear about her life and her Detroit roots. People who live here knew that Aaliyah was from here and lived here. And it, it was just like a spark, you know, like maybe just around the corner. Something will turn for me as well when it's time for me to have a career or when it's time for me to make art. All that and more coming up on Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Bear. Today on the show, we'll talk with an organization working to resettle Afghan people in Lansing. That's coming up later on, but first... Plans are underway for a new effort to change Michigan election laws. Its supporters talk about it in terms of election security. But if we learned anything in 2020, it's that election security to one party may mean voter suppression to another. This is not a referendum for the ballot, but for Michigan's legislature, which can take up proposals if petitioners get the requisite number of signatures. Jonathan Osting is a politics reporter for Bridge, Michigan. He recently published a story about this effort, and he joins us now. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So, again, just to reiterate, what's the play here? Is there any intention of getting uh, the state's entire uh, the the entire population to vote on this? Uh, no, that's not the goal. The goal here is to use kind of a unique workaround in the Michigan Constitution that allows groups to collect petitions from, I believe it's like 8% of the people who voted in the last gubernatorial election. And if they collect that many signatures, they can then send the legislation right to Lansing, to the state legislature, which then could enact it into law without the governor's signature and without sending it to the statewide ballot. So in this case, Governor Whitmer has been on record saying she'll veto any legislation that makes it harder to vote. Um, So Republicans, if they want to change the laws in the ways they're proposing, uh, basically have to try and go around her. And there is a mechanism that allows them to do that. The initial package of bills that Republican legislators proposed was large, and it talked about a lot of different things. Can you run us through what specifically this petition drive is proposing to change? Yeah, that's right. The Senate proposal included 39 bills um, and included a lot of stuff unlike you know, poll challenger training that did not make it into this final um, version of the initiated legislation now that is going to be circulated by petition. This petition focuses on uh, three areas, really. One is voter identification. Michigan already has a voter ID law, but this would remove an exemption that allows in-person voters without an ID to still cast a ballot if they sign an affidavit under penalty of perjury saying they are who they say they are. Uh, It would also, for the first time, require some sort of identification for absentee ballot voting. Um, The form they chose here for the initiative is people applying for an absentee ballot would need to include uh, their driver's license or state ID number 
along with the last four digits of their social security number. Uh, that's new. Um, in Michigan right now, you have to provide uh, your ID number when registering to vote. So clerks say, you know, they already have this information and they check signatures. They've generally said they don't need this additional uh, ID requirement, but Republicans are forging ahead anyways with this initiative. Uh, and then there's two other elements, um, which are a little more uh, uh, broad-based. Uh, one would prevent the Secretary of State uh, from mass mailing unsolicited absentee ballot applications to voters. Uh, so Jocelyn Benson, the Secretary of State right now, could only send absentee ballot applications to people who requested them. Last year during the pandemic, she sent them to everybody. Uh, there were some instances where those went to uh, the wrong household or something like that, but they were just applications, so it didn't lead to any actual fraud. Uh, and then the final element of this is to block private or outside or corporate funding for public elections. Uh, last year, a group called the Center for Tech, um, I'm forgetting the full name, CTCL, which was funded by Mark Zuckerberg of CEO, um, gave grants out to lots of election administrators across the country, including a bunch in Michigan, both Democrats and Republicans, who got this private funding to help them hire staff, buy more ballot drop boxes and take other steps to prepare for what was really a unique election last year because of the pandemic. Republicans are generally uh, in favor of public-private partnerships. Why is it that Michigan's Republic, some of Michigan's Republicans are concerned about private funding for elections? Sure. So the concern here is that private groups could choose to only fund election administration in, uh, say, particularly Democratic cities. So uh, to try and boost turnout and increase, um, you know, the capacity for voting only in certain parts of the state, essentially picking winners and losers. Now, I want to be clear, there's no evidence that actually happened last year with CTCL. Um, I did a deep dive into uh, the grants and how they were distributed. And certainly cities like Detroit did get the largest grants, but it's also the largest city with the most, allowed, uh, most amount of voters. Jonathan, the state GOP is not permitted to fund this drive. Is that correct? Yeah, there was a ruling, in fact, just this week, a declaratory ruling by the Secretary of State that the state GOP's administrative account cannot directly uh, contribute to the ballot initiative. Do you think that's going to pose a serious question as to whether this can this can get off the ground? Uh, no, I don't. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's unfortunate that there's a lot of avenues for dark money in uh, politics nationally and in Michigan specifically. Can we talk about timing? What has to happen in order for this to become law? When when might we see the legislature take it up if it if it if the signatures are there? Sure. So um, it's going to be a while. Um, the first process that they're going through is to try and get pre-approval for the form of the petition. So making sure the font size is correct uh, and that the language is um, presented adequately so that uh, it can't be challenged in court later on and, and sort of gum up the whole thing right from the start. So that's going to take a few weeks, uh, if not a month, uh, before the Board of State Canvassers would approve the form of the petition. Uh, then, 
<laughs> you know, the group has to collect 340 plus thousand signatures, which is no small task. Um, we know from Unlock Michigan that some of these GOP organizers are pretty good at doing this and can do so in a matter of months. But, um, you know, getting later into the year here, it is always harder to collect signatures in Michigan's colder months. Uh, so that'll be an obstacle. So realistically, I think there's very little chance that this reaches the legislature still in 2021. And that is an interesting wrinkle because under Michigan law, uh, if the legislature enacts this uh, initiative in, in 2022, it would not actually take effect for the 2022 election. Uh, that It's a little in the weeds here, but the Michigan Senate does not have enough votes to give legislation what's called immediate effect. Republicans don't have a two-thirds majority that would be needed. And that means the law wouldn't take effect until after the legislature is done for the year in 2022. Um, so uh, any changes to Michigan elections laws that are done in this unique manner uh, probably wouldn't impact the midterm election, which of course is gonna feature Governor Whitmer and Republicans trying to unseat her along with other uh, statewide Democrats like Dana Nessel and, and Jocelyn Benson and uh, a bunch of important congressional state house and legislative races as well. Wow. So, I mean, if the timing is a little bit wonky on this, do you see this as an effort uh, to try to to try to get Republican voters who voted for President Trump excited, you know, some red meat to to get them thinking about what's at stake in an election year? Oh, that's exactly that's certainly a, a good part of it. Yeah. I mean, Republicans know uh, even Republicans who do not believe the so-called big lie that that the election was stolen. Uh, they know that they've got a problem with a number of their voters who believe that uh, the election system was rigged and could be again. So, yes, some of this is symbolic. They uh, you know, there's a there's a belief in Republican circles that they have to do something uh, to show their voters that they are making changes now just because this doesn't have immediate effect and take effect for the 2022 election, it would take effect by 2024 if done successfully in this manner. So let's say Trump runs again in 2024. Um, he, you know, the, the laws would have been changed uh, by that time. Um, so, you know, it's not a fruitless endeavor from the Republican perspective, but it's one that's going to take a little longer than they had probably hoped. This workaround that the organizers are hoping to leverage going straight to the legislature via petition drive and bypassing the governor and, and voters, this is a loophole that's been exploited several times over the past decade over pretty big issues. Have you heard anybody talking seriously about changing the law that allows for this? You know, it comes up uh, every time this maneuver is used. Uh, but no, uh, to answer your question, I have not heard any real uh, organized discussion, at least not yet at this point, about changing this mechanism. Uh, there's probably a couple reasons for that. One, it would require amending the state constitution, and that requires more signatures. It's a higher threshold to do that, and it requires a, a vote of the people. So it would be a long, probably expensive and arduous process. Um, second, you know, sort of like uh, gerrymandering, for instance, um, 
even the party that's not in power <laughs> knows that this exists and maybe it's an avenue they might like to use someday themselves. So, uh, you know, that's that's been an obstacle to a lot of reform in, in Michigan over the years is is just the sort of long game that that parties might be facing. Um, but certainly Democrats are mad and certainly Republicans have done a better job of using this unique mechanism. Uh, right to Life of Michigan sort of pioneered this approach to tighten uh, abortion restrictions in the state. And more recently now, um, Republicans have used it, as I mentioned, uh, to repeal a law that gave uh, Governor Whitmer some emergency powers early in the pandemic that she used to issue orders. Jonathan Osting, politics correspondent for Bridge, Michigan. Jonathan, thanks for this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We've just passed the anniversary of R&B superstar Aaliyah's death. The Detroit native is remembered for her enduring influence. More memories in just a minute. Stay with us. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Once upon a time in Detroit, a very young woman with a very strong sense of self went to school at Detroit School of Arts. This was a girl with hair that swooped down low over her left eye, a girl with style, grace, and a voice like butter, and she was about to break open some new chapters in black girl stardom. It was 20 years ago that Aliyah released her much-beloved self-titled Red album, and just weeks later died in a plane crash in the Bahamas on the way home from a video shoot. Some of us have never been the same. Detroit writer Imani Mixon wrote an appreciation of this late idol for the Detroit Metro Times. Imani, welcome back to Stateside. Hi, thanks for having me. When you were first hearing Aaliyah, what jumped out at you about her? Oh, wow. I think for me, it was the same as a lot of other listeners in that she just didn't sound like anything we'd ever heard before. I think sometimes when you get a voice that's that angelic, you expect I don't know, a harp or a violin, but to have like a bass heavy beat and like a full on production crew ready to make you just sound and glow even more um, was something that was really appealing to like fourth grade me. It seems like she was in the driver's seat for much of her own style and aesthetic. Do you have a sense coming up in Detroit with its with its unique fashion culture and unique history what she may have what she may have taken from this place you know i don't know if it would be something that manifested in her style as much as maybe the way she went about things i think detroit is a cool city <laughs> and she was very much a cool girl but from what i learned from her stylist Derek lee that i talked to for the story um it was a very hands-on collaborative effort between them to make her style happen and to also make it something that was universal as opposed to rooted in one place. Like, I don't really think we ever saw her in like a mink <laughs> or a big leather or something like that um, in the way that we would if she was particularly going for like a Detroit entertainer style. Yeah. In terms of her musical style, when I think back to who was who was big around that time, you know, there was Mariah Carey and On Vogue and and all these, you know, sort of untouchable goddess type figures, you know, the real the real super mega stars. And then Tony Braxton and Whitney were doing grown up lady music, you know, it was a little mm -hmm. generationally different. And then here came Aaliyah singing about really relatable relationships and singing about vulnerability. It kind of felt like a revelation. For sure. And I think 
it was a really good, <laughs> really good entry way into what love could be like, you know, like I feel like sometimes younger singers, you kind of only get bubblegum pop or you get like the sweet part of things. Um, and maybe this was a peek into her real life. But I feel like we got all angles of what a relationship could, should, and shouldn't be through her. Mm-hmm. But it was still very, very fun to listen to. There was nothing that was like too daunting in her music, I would say. I, I didn't quite put it together that when she was when she was on her way up and she was making songs like Aging Nothing But a Number and At Your Best. She was enrolled at DSA. <laughs> she was mm-hmm. she was going to school. When I feel what I feel Sometimes it's hard to tell you so You may not be in the mood to learn What you think you know What do people tell you about that period? That it happened really quickly. I think um, when we retell stories, it's really easy to exaggerate. But when I spoke to the past principal, Dr. Denise Davis Cotton, she mentioned that Aaliyah had only been there for like a year. So like her sophomore year is when she started going on the road and traveling. And obviously it made a big, big impact on her. She came back for prom. She came back for graduation. But she wasn't there all the time. And she wasn't there for long. Yeah. Did you recognize her in when you were a kid and listening to her? Did you recognize her as in certain ways signaling Detroit? Not necessarily. And I can't speak to whether or not that was on purpose or not. But I think, you know, Detroit pride is a thing. There are a lot of other big black cities that have a similar pride and, you know, like an Eminem or a Big Shine that is central to their character arc. Whereas with Aaliyah, I think because no one really knew where she was from because she was born in New York and lived there when she was younger and then came here. Um, It just wasn't at the forefront of her story, but locally we knew people who live here knew that Aaliyah was from here and lived here. And it, it was just like a spark, you know, like maybe just around the corner, something will turn for me as well when it's time for me to have a career or when it's time for me to make art. Yeah. Why do you think Detroit wasn't as much a part of her public origin story? I think a lot wasn't a part of her public origin story. I think um, in hindsight, she could be anything or anyone. And I think that, you know, is a beautiful invitation. But within that, you also can't necessarily root her in a place. You It's really hard to pinpoint where her sound is because it changed and her style. So I think it also may be is just a reflection of her youth, you know? Like she didn't have to make up her mind. She didn't have to have one thing that she did over and over. She clearly wasn't a one trick pony if we're talking about her 20 years later. Right. Um, So I think the parts of Detroit that impacted her, which I was definitely trying to dig into in the story are sort of fantasy readings, things that we have to imagine or maybe even project onto her because they're not readily available. But I don't think it was, even necessarily on purpose as much as, you know, she had a very close to the chest life. Like she didn't really tell us too much. Yeah. You did speak with Eric Seats and he and his partner, Mm -hmm. Rapture Stewart, 
uh, who are known as Key Beats Inc. in their professional lives. They, they were a very important producing team for Aaliyah. What did Eric have to say about those or her in those years? Everybody had beautiful things to say. And I think, like, isn't that the legacy that we want to have when we're all gone and everybody's just gushing over how great you were? Yeah. Um, but I think the beautiful thing for me to discover is just, you know, trying to look at her through the lens of being an art school kid. You know, like, she really lived the art school kid dream. Everybody wants to travel, to have people know them by their first name, to have their art out there. And he was also um, an art school kid. So I think they were able to bond over the music and also like the entertainment factor of things, the performance, the style. And yeah, he he just gave a lot of insight. And apparently she was like a next door neighbor of his when he moved to New York. So they used to like go shopping to fill up his apartment at Pottery Barn or she would go to Times Square and go to the movies by herself. Like that kind of stuff, I think was really sweet just to get an idea of who she actually was, although I do think she actually was, you know, a major entertainer. She was also a young woman trying to figure things out and trying to signal a different time in her career with this album. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Detroit writer Imani Mixon. She has a cover story remembering Aaliyah in the Detroit Metro Times. Imani, there's a there's a ghost in this profile, uh, a name that's never spoken. Something that you allude to in a way that anyone familiar with the story of Aaliyah cannot miss. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry to go there because you worked so hard to lift up different truths about her life. But I, I wanted to ask you about R. Kelly. For those who aren't familiar, Aaliyah's uncle introduced them, and Kelly produced songs for her. And this is a man who, as we speak, is on trial for racketeering and sex trafficking. And he sexually abused Aaliyah, and he got her into an illegal marriage when she was 15. She worked very, very hard to not be defined by that and to not discuss what happened in the years after. Why did you make the choice not to write about that chapter of her life? I definitely think it came from a place of love. And hopefully understanding, like, I don't know anything more than, you know, anybody else who's been following the new cycle knows. But I didn't want to define her by her worst possible relationship. We've seen a lot of other women, a lot of other pop stars end up in that in that cycle of talking about their abuser or their ex um, or both. And I just didn't want to. (laughs) I think for my own emotional clarity and and mental health, it wouldn't have been a productive writing project. And it was much more inviting to talk about the life that she did have and the life that she was proud of. And also the fact that this was an album he did not touch. So to have somebody be so hands-on with your first couple albums and then be completely, you know, erased from the picture purposefully. So I think that is what I took from it. And it didn't merit my writing for me. And I really do appreciate the investigative journalists and the breaking news journalists who give us back-to-back updates about him. But I was not interested in that. If it's her story, it's her story. Sure. Well, you don't really get to that third album without some of the changes that she went through in her second record, One in a Million. And at this point in her career, she was working with Missy Elliott. She's working with Timberland. How, How do you see her having changed in that artist in a way that paved the way 
for for the that that later record that that you find most interesting? I think you know when back in the day, if you were working with Missy and Timberland, you were ready to try something new. You were ready to experiment. You were ready to be a little bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think yeah. that's what they bring to sound. And it's, it's something you don't know you can dance to until you dance to it. So I would imagine that she was enjoying that newness um, where it is R&B, but it's something completely new. It's not a cover. It's not something our parents listen to. And I think that paved the way for the Aaliyah album because, you know, if you... If you make something with your name on it, you're uh, assuming that people will gravitate toward it and understand it as who you are. And from the conversations I had with Eric Seitz, you know, everything we heard in that Aaliyah album was real life. Um, Her songwriters were talking with her about life to write the album. So I think this is probably the, the closest we'll get to her real life was Aaliyah. And it's cool if everything else had other people pulling the strings. But for Aaliyah, it really felt like she was in the driver's seat. And I really enjoyed being a passenger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Red Album, as as fans call it, her self-titled release and the one that was the last uh, studio album that, that we have of her. What What is it about that record that makes it so revelatory for you? Um, you know, any music writing is really sort of a personal essay. Like it was really hard for you to talk about the music you listen to without talking about your life at that moment. So it came out right before I became a big sister in fourth grade, before I went to private school, um, before I really got an interest in writing. Even I learned about writing when I went to my private school and had a great English teacher. And, um, I think it was also one of those moments where I realized that I personally do have a stake in this story and a qualification to talk about this album. Um, I think it was a turning point for me where I'm like, oh, I really am into pop culture. I'm really into music and I also can talk intelligently about it. Um, And it was just fun to listen to. So I think that time was much easier to remember because so many things happened around it. Um, and shortly after her death was 9-11. And then shortly after 9-11 was Lisa Left Eye Lopez and her death. And I think as just a fan and a consumer of media, you never think that those things can happen. And they all happen in a very short amount of time. So Aaliyah is definitely a time capsule. And I think it was intended to be, but I don't think it was intended to be such a somber time capsule that it has become. You write in the essay that for a generation of Black women like yourself, that plane crash in the Bahamas was in some ways the beginning of years and years of losses that would follow. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? For sure. So I think at that point, um, I had a really sheltered, semi-privileged childhood, and I hadn't had any close losses in my life. So I was very invested in you know, music and and entertainment and to have her gone just didn't feel right. Like, I think it, you know, it becomes a moment where you start to think about, you know, what is death? How long do I get to be here? How do I go? And yeah, the, the circumstances surrounding her death is just tragic. That's the only way you can put it. So I think in my mind and in an ideal world, every Black woman gets to live in peace and harmony and happiness for as long as she can and wants to and nothing bad ever happens to her. 
but um, it did definitely feel like a personal loss that she left. And also knowing, you know, like now with police brutality or even something as close as 9-11, like there are other losses. This pandemic gave us so many losses. And I think it was at the precipice of, you know, a lifelong system or rhythm of having to deal with losing people and things. Imani, will you share some favorite songs? Oh my gosh, yes. So uh, I was interviewing Eric Seats and trying to be really professional <laughs> and not not fangirl, but he told me that my favorite song on the album called It's Whatever uh, was something that he made 10 years ago. The beat was something he made 10 years ago, just so happened to have it on him and showed it to her. And that is my absolute favorite song in the album. It definitely changes um, depending on maybe the time in my life, but for the last year or so, I would say it's whatever. It's my favorite because, you know, in the song, she's like, it's whatever. Like, we can do whatever, whatever, doesn't matter. But you can tell that it does matter. (laughs) So um, I I love the lyricism of that song. I love how airy and flowy the beat is. And I love her voice on it. And that that's the one that carries me. Right. This essay, you called it Remembering and Releasing, Aaliyah. Could you tell us about that choice of words, why it was time to release her? For sure. So I pitched the story a year ago. And I, when I started writing, I was like, um, you know, her music is not on streaming. Everything's on YouTube. That's all we've had. And I had no clue that background records would have you know a rollout prepared which maybe I should have assumed but it kind of ended up having a dual meaning because yes the Aaliyah album will be released on September 10th um, but also as fans or as a listening public um, or tweeting public (laughs) we (laughs) need to release whatever ideas we have about her because it's not fair because she's not here because it's not cool to imagine where she would be now or um, it's not necessarily even cool to buy a t-shirt or to, you know, compare her to all these new pop girls that are coming up. Like, I just was very concerned with her spirit being at peace. So I think the releasing for me is more about changing our mindset about consumption. Like, if she's not on earth anymore, there's nothing left to consume. And trying to be very intentional about what we do consume and what we do feed into So I think for me, there's just a respect level that can be granted to her legacy that we haven't necessarily gotten to yet because we're so always ready to consume and always ready to recreate and bring back to life. And that just feels a little sticky for me. Imani Mixon's essay, Remembering and Releasing Aaliyah, 20 Years Later, is the cover of the latest Detroit Metro Times. Imani, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that people are reading this story. I love it. There's a lot of love in there. And I can't wait to write more beautiful, long-form things like this. In just a moment, what's in the works for Afghans coming to live and rebuild in the Lansing area? I was so lonely and and I couldn't connect with anyone because of the social um, and the culture shock. That's after a break. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. After nearly 20 years, the U.S. military has departed Afghanistan. And this is the end of a long and complicated chapter for both countries. 
For the Afghan refugees who are soon to arrive in the United States, this time is just the beginning. The beginning of a process of starting over in a new country, the beginning of learning a new language, and trying to build a new community of support. Refugee resettlement organizations across Michigan are busy preparing to help Afghan families do that. Yesterday on the program, we talked with State Representative Joe Tate about his effort to raise money for the new arrivals. Today, we're going to be hearing from some of the people who hopefully will use that money to help welcome and support newcomers in the Lansing area. Erica Brown Binion is director of the Refugee Redevelopment Center in Lansing. Erica, welcome to Stateside. Thanks so much for having me. And Yusuf Sultani is with us, too. He's president of the Afghan Association of Michigan, and he's also a junior at Western Michigan University. Yusuf, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Erica, do you have a sense right now of how many folks from Afghanistan are being routed to the Lansing area? It is changing by the minute. We just, we don't have a firm answer, but we can probably anticipate a little over a thousand in the state of Michigan um, and maybe up to 300 here in the Lansing area. So we're, we are um, getting prepared. We're working closely with other partner organizations to make sure that we have the ability to welcome them and help them thrive in this community. What is the Cliff Notes version of this resettlement process and, and what it's like for the folks who are just arriving? Yeah, so I mean, as you can imagine, um, having to, to leave with only the things that you can quickly gather and be evacuated is a traumatic and very, very difficult experience. Um, and that's only the beginning of the journey when folks are... Um, in that process, they have to be, you know, background checked and go through the regular uh, steps that any refugee would have to before they're able to come to the United States. So that's a process in itself. And then when you show up in a brand new place in a different culture, different language, different customs and traditions, different weather, um, it's, it's incredibly challenging. And that's really why the Refugee Development Center here in Lansing exists. We're here to help folks when they arrive and on their journey so that they can be successful and be able to thrive. But that takes food, clothing, shelter, um, helping people prepare for work, um, helping kids in their school, helping parents communicate, helping with language. So all of those things are pieces of the wraparound support that we hope to be able to provide. And we know we will will be able to provide because um, there's, there's so many people working at those efforts right now. Yusuf, you got to the United States in 2016, about this time of year in October. And at that time, I, I think you were about 16 years old, right? Yes. Are you comfortable telling us a little bit about why you had to leave Afghanistan? Um, sure. So as the situation going on right now, it's um, really extreme and, and, and really awful. Um, I was uh, some sort of situation like that, that my life was in danger. So I had to leave my country and leave my family behind to come here and start a new life. Will you tell us a little bit about what the experience was like of coming to Michigan? It seems like it would be hard to imagine two more different places. So when I arrived here, um, it was a different environment, different culture, different people. Um, it was quite a strange to see the houses and the people and the quietness, the area that I used to live. 
It was fall. It was really beautiful. The trees were yellow and orange and the street was so quiet. The house was really nice. I only saw those houses in movies, but none of them would matter because I was so lonely and, and I couldn't connect with anyone because of the social um, and the culture shock. I was able to go to school, but I wasn't able to connect with the students because the the language barrier and the culture barrier. Were there things that helped you get through that period? Yes. Um, with the help of uh, Samaritas, um, they had arranged a, a Christmas party for refugee youth at the time. I met some Afghan uh, refugees and some other people. And through them, I got connected with different resources, different people. And I ended up finding my foster mom through that party. And um, two months later, I moved with her and I started a new life, a new journey. And until today, um, I'm thankful to her. Erica, I'm interested in the work that your center does, the Refugee Development Center, in that it's not a formal resettlement agency like Samaritas or some other groups that we may know of. Instead, you work to fill in the gaps for people who are, who are building their lives. Can you talk about like what some of those needs are and what you're able to do for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you said it exactly. We are here to kind of fill the gaps. Um, I look at it as kind of a puzzle that we're all trying to make sure as a coordinated effort through resettlement agencies and um, nonprofits like the RDC to make sure that that people have the services they need. So that for us um, is, is really founded in education. So offering um, services that help people grow. English classes is one of our primary, a mentoring program, tutoring programs, um, support groups like a women's sewing circle and a newcomer soccer team and providing home visits and uh, food deliveries and really figuring out from hearing from folks what they need and developing kind of programs around that. So we just started a digital literacy program this past year, which couldn't have been more timely, um, helping families know how to navigate computers and log into their kids' school system. And all of those kind of support efforts are, are what we provide on a regular basis um, and have been doing so for the last, you know, 19 years. You know, I was so interested by what Yusef was just saying about how sometimes it is that is that incidental meeting at a, at a holiday party that might unlock an opportunity or, uh, you know, a social connection that could really make a big difference. How do you think about making making those opportunities possible? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Building community and building networks and building that wraparound support is, um, I think, a focus for a lot of us in this work. Um, one of the ways that we do that is we have a really robust volunteering program and we pair up uh, longtime community members with newer arrivals and the relationships that are formed from those connections are lifelong for many. Um, we've had many volunteers uh, switch career paths because of the experience um, and lifelong friendships, like I said, have been formed. So that really to us is a way to, to build community and make the connection between new arrivals and longtime residents um, really vibrant and strong. 
If you're just joining us, I'm speaking today with Erica Brown-Binion, Director of the Refugee Development Center in Lansing. And we're also talking with Yusuf Sultani. He's president of the Afghan Association of Michigan, and he's a junior at Western Michigan University. Yusuf, can you tell me a little bit about the Afghan Association? This is a, this is a pretty young group. I, I think you helped get things started just about four months ago during the pandemic, no less, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, the Afghan Association of Michigan is formed by uh, young, motivated Afghans um, who came here not long time ago, just um, between five to uh, seven years ago. Um, also, we have members that have been here uh, for over 20 years. Um, this association started uh, to form because of the, the lack of uh, can not connecting with each other. As I mentioned earlier, when I came here, I was so lonely and I was I wasn't able to connect with anyone. Our mission is helping new arrivals, strengthen our community and preserve and celebrate Afghan culture. But the main focus right now with the devastated situation that was going on in Afghanistan we're mainly focusing on new arrivals right now. We want to help the new arrivals to have the experience um, that we didn't have. We want to provide them with emotional support, uh, physical support, or goods that they could have a good life in here and also provide them cash assistance uh, um, as well as mentorship, as well as the... Um, other supports that could help them to get through this. Yusuf, the kinds of loneliness that people experience when they, when they pick up and, and leave, leave a life behind and start a new one, th- that kind of loneliness can be social loneliness, but it can take so many other forms, you know, just missing uh, different foods or familiar views that they used to have, or, or like you said, you were talking about the sounds that you that you used used to be a part of daily life. It's such a such a complete change in culture. How do you think about what you can what you can accomplish for these folks coming over? I mean, you can't you can't make them feel like they felt in their in their former lives, but how do you think about what they can accomplish? In the, in the first few months and years that they're here? To give them a feeling that here's um, an individual from your own country that have been lived here for a while and I might not know all the things in here, but I, I know quite enough that could help that individual to accomplish a certain things. Um, Let's say that individual come to the airport and I would welcome that individual with open arms and warm hugs to help them out and bring them to their home. And they will see their home decorated with the Afghan culture that they used to see in Afghanistan. And there should be a warm meal for them that could give them a sort of feeling of home and welcoming. And as well as the, the next day, we will provide them with a welcome package. That welcome package includes bus passes, um, a cash assistant, um, foods, clothing, uh, and 
um, other home goods that could help them out to get it started. As we will, as we will go along, we'll help them out with um, mentorship and daily visits and get them to their appointments and get their necessary documents together. I think these are the supports that could help them out to uh, to avoid those desperation and avoid those um, loneliness. Yeah. What has it been like for you and some of the others in the association to watch what's been happening in Afghanistan over the past couple of weeks? Um, um, it, it's very challenging time and very terrifying to think that what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, personally, me, I have, I still have families in Afghanistan and I am worried about them. And I'm, I'm also in a close contact with them, like to get updated every second or every minute, every day to see what's happening. Are they okay? Are they feeling safe? It's, it's just terrifying. It's got to be really hard to be living with that every day. We, we want to wish you the best for your family and friends. Thank you. Erica, folks who are coming over right now obviously have been through a lot of trauma, in addition to the trauma of leaving one's home and starting over. What kind of mental health supports can you help them with? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that, that we think about is all of our programs need to have that sense of community building and that lends itself to supporting people who need to um, feel safe and welcome and find new friendships like Yusuf was describing. So just the general nature of a lot of our um, in-person programs lend itself to that idea, but also connecting um, people who need more more formal uh, therapy services. There are people in this area who specialize in trauma-informed care, uh, working with refugees, so making those connections. And then having support groups like our Women's Sewing Circle or our Newcomers um, Soccer Team are ways that we engage folks to get them out of their house and not feel as isolated and, like Yusuf said, not feeling uh, lonely and not knowing where to go. I can't even imagine the experience that, that people have been through and the, the trauma that they may have experienced. But what we can do is provide opportunity um, for people to feel safe and welcomed and, and build friendships and new networks um, in our community. Yusuf, having the Afghan Association underway now, even though it's a pretty new organization, are you hopeful that this might be a little different experience for the folks who are newcomers this time, might have a little, just even a little bit more of an advantage than you did? Um, of course, this, this um, organization will help them out uh, to be a part of the community. So we will also have a community orientation. We will invite all the Afghans in here in Lansing, and we will have an event that they could get together and welcome these refugees into the community. And I think this this gathering will help them out to feel like they they belong here. Do you worry more about the first few weeks and days, or do you think some of the more difficult moments might come later? I'm I'm worried about later uh, because 
the first couple of weeks are they're trying to figure out the environment and as they went along the trauma is going to hit that time the 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 stress is going to come out at that time and the culture shock is going to come out that time um all of this is going to form later but we're trying to figure out how we can provide the environment that they could avoid those uh trauma in early um stage what do you think is what do you think is helpful over the long term i would say that the, the support in in being present for them and give them the feeling that it's not it's not going to be the same feeling that they had back home um but being present for them and give them a sort of feeling that there is people that care about you and there is a whole community and resources available to help you where you want to be yeah i i would just add that you know one of the things you asked is how do we um support people for the long term because i agree with yusuf it's it's not just the first few weeks it really is ongoing um and one of the things that i think we're proud of is that there are no time limits on our services we want to support people on their journey for however long that may be and part of that is building this community of new arrivals and long-term residents who who work together um and become part of of one fabric of one um really diverse and special community My guests today have been Yusef Sultani. He's president of the Afghan Association of Michigan and a junior at WMU. And we've also been talking with Erica Brown-Binion of the Refugee Development Center in Lansing. Yusef, Erica, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. And that is Stateside for today. Our show is produced by Aaron Allen, Mike Blank, April Van Buren, and by our director, Mercedes Mejia. We get additional help from Chantel Phillips, Ronia Cabansag, and Lucas Pollock. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Stateside is a production of Michigan Radio, a broadcast service of the University of Michigan. I'm April Baer. Thank you very, very much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>